You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Before They Were Alive, an ongoing and monthly conversation traversing the Disney animated canon in chronological order, doing our best to play a part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom as we talk about these stories. Is that all they were? Stories? Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience, have some fun, and aren't pursued by pirates. Today we're boarding the RLS Legacy for a few character building minutes as we follow a map to 2002's Treasure Planet, the 43rd in the canon and the fifth film in the Ron Clements and John Musker septology. Septi- I don't know. They made seven films, which is pretty amazing, um, in the canon. Um, Ron and John self-described this movie as being the, quote, end of Act 2 for their careers. In a three-act structure, the end of Act 2 is when everything seems absolutely hopeless for the hero and there's no hope. Uh, This movie was made amidst turmoil at the Disney studio. Roy Disney and Michael Eisner weren't getting along. They uh, announced during the making of this movie the end of hand-drawn animation at the studio. Um, not as some have erroneously suggested because of this movie, it was kind of in the works already, but, uh, then Disney also very publicly announced that they were writing this movie off on the Monday after opening weekend, which was again, probably as a result of some Roy Disney and Eisner infighting, um, so anyway, despite all that, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, uh, but it ultimately lost to Spirited Away. Well, it's totally preposterous traversing the entire canon alone, so I've brought along a doctor, but he's not that kind of doctor. He has a doctorate, but you can't help people with a doctorate. You just sit there and you're useless. I also haven't confirmed this, but I believe he keeps his toothbrush on the top of a gigantic pile of books. Is that correct? Dr. Michael Farmer? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I want you to know that I go out of my way to call physicians physicians and not doctors. So I'm the real doctor is what I'm saying. My PhD makes me an, an actual doctor, whereas people with medical degrees are physicians, medics, although uh, probably more useful in most situations. Yeah. <laughs> and this month we have a very special guest. Uh, she speaks nothing but her heart at all times. It's Sarai Manning, the creator and co-host of Not a Lady, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast. Hey, Sarai. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I'm super excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, we're super happy to have you as well. Um, I know Sarai in in person. She's not just a fan of the show, but... (laughs) um, uh, I mean, we can pretend. I can be, like, the hope. Like, I made it as a fan, right? (laughs) Like, getting got myself invited onto the show. (laughs) Do do you want to give a 30-second pitch for your Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast? Because I I haven't seen that show since I was in high school, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear how you conduct the podcast. Yeah, so it's so interesting, and I I have to, like, I hate to be, um, 
Uh, flim flamming, as uh, Captain Amelia says in the in the film. Uh, but like the praise to you guys, you guys were a huge actually inspiration for my desire to start a podcast. And um, I I've been living abroad and um, working abroad for a number of years. And so uh, my sister and I have actually not spent a lot of time together. And so it was initiated as um, my sister and I are very different. She is currently in medical school studying to be a physician's assistant, actually. And meanwhile, I am, you know, a, a theater teacher, uh, English language arts teacher. And there's not a lot, actually, that we have in common as as sisters. We're kind of two polar opposites. But one thing that we actually grew up loving together uh, is Dr. Quinn. And it was kind of a family show. And so we we had this idea to kind of revisit Dr. Quinn together. And um, I'm I'm a self-proclaimed history buff, uh, love history and and film, you know, um, and so Kelly, my sister and I. So we go we're going through every episode and we obviously discuss the content of the episodes. But then Kelly also dives into like medical analysis, both historical and comparing to like modern of what happens in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, because obviously her medical practice is a huge part of the show. And I'm there to just geek out about all the, the historical, you know, just little hints that are hidden within, you know, this story that takes place in post-Civil War, you know, out west Colorado. Um, and so it's it's really fun. It's really a, a sister bonding. It started out really as a sister bonding experience, but actually we've been surprised to find how many Dr. Quinn fans, yeah, have risen up out of the, the ashes like almost 30 years later after the show's kind of started and finished uh, to find there are a lot of people who are still excited to talk about Dr. Quinn, so it's pretty funny. Awesome. It doesn't surprise me at all. That seems like that seems like the sort of show that would inspire really intense uh, loyalty 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That for sure. It's been fun. Yeah, and and much like this movie, actually, there's there's a very intense uh, fan community community of this movie, even though it's it's one of the um, you know, lesser, lesser, um, huh, what am I trying to say? Like, it's, it's not one of the bit, the ones that Disney actively promotes. Well, it's a notorious know? flop, um, right? Yeah. I mean, whatever, yeah. whatever the artistic merits of the movie are, um, it, it, it did not make even the, the, the budget, let alone the marketing budget back. And, uh, I, I, I had always heard that this was the reason they decided to shut down the 2D animation, uh, department, Josh. I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that it, it, it that, that decision had been made prior to that. But that's certainly that's the reputation yeah. that has been attached to this. That it, it this is this single-handedly killed the studio. Right. Well, well it's been... still to this day the most expensive movie with traditional animation. Like it's yeah. at the top of every list for the most money <laughs> they've spent. Yeah, and they were—they actually were within budget. the The movie was budgeted um, that high. It just, um, yeah, like as I said, there was a lot of infighting at the studio, and they—they—I they, mean, they were trying to discover as a studio, like where, where is animation going, and what are we going to do? And so, um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, they did make that decision, uh, I mean, while the movie was still in development. So it wasn't like, oh, this movie did so bad. That's why we're 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 canceling. Um, <laughs> we're canceling uh, hand drawn animation. But um, yeah, it was it was there's actually production. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about this film's production as well that I don't know if you guys know much about it, but like especially for those who are like super fans, there's like a lot of analysis about why this movie did did the way it did in the box office and it has nothing to do with the the film itself but po- yeah like company politics and stuff right yeah and and you know Josh has mentioned the infighting between Roy Disney and uh, Michael Eisner and Eisner has been a repeated punching bag for us uh the, the last you know 10 10 or 15 episodes of this show just cuz he's so That's not true so, Michael Oh, that's I, right. I'm appealing to Eisner to uh, you know to 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 actually promote our show. So that's right. I'm um, sorry. I, for a while he was our punching bag, and then Josh has been begging him to come on the show and and uh, offer us some sort of Netflix series. I think is his ultimate goal. But I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you've said that out loud yet. This this definitely has some qualities that I associate with the Eisner era of Disney, and in particular, I'm thinking of the, the kind of totally radical late nineties uh, vibe of some of the movie. Um, mm. And maybe, maybe I'm just thinking of Jim Hawkins, haircut. Uh, that, that, that seems like, that seems like something Eisner would have insisted on to try to get young people to come watch the movie. His haircut is amazing. Mm. I don't understand how it works. Like, I think it's so cool. And I thought it was cool when I was young. I was like, that is, the cool boy haircut you know <laughs> but it is yeah it is definitely a product of of the era like it it fits with when you find out when the movie came out <laughs> when when they were developing i you know it's funny i i thought for a long time it was just the kind of undershave and then three quarters of the way through the movie hawkins turns around and he's got a rat tail too <laughs> yeah Does... it's, got both. it's kind of amazing i don't understand how it works <laughs> <laughs> why, why choose when you can have both uh, both terrible late 20th century both. haircuts? But that's you know like a negative and a negative is a positive, right? <laughs> <laughs> they go together. <laughs> I think you know what's really interesting too when you talk about the stylistic, like the look of this film, uh, especially if we're talking about the history. I, I think it's crazy to know that. Um, Clements and Musker first pitched this film right after the Black Cauldron in like 1985 mm-hmm. at the Gong Show, right? And and then again in 89 and then 92, and they were like, no, do Little Mermaid, no, do Aladdin, no. And then it was like finally when there was like they rewrote a contract that was like, if you do Hercules, we'll let you have your uh, Treasure Island in Space, right? Which was their working title was Treasure Island in Space. Um, I'm glad that they kind of changed that. But um, and then finally was like, so it was like this thing that I feel like Clements and Musker really like worked for this film and like really kept advocating for it after so long, which I think speaks a lot to the the passion and commitment they felt for the project itself, which almost makes it more of a tragedy like just the box office um you know flop aspect of it because you realize how 
And then it's interesting to think about what if they had said yes in 85 or 89 or 92, like how would the film have been different than it is now with the, you know, being made and finished in 2002? Right. Well, certainly they wouldn't have had the the uh, 3D capability to do some of the, the tricks they do, which I, I'm sure looked great in yeah. 2002 and, and don't hold up terribly well as, as a lot of the the early 3D animation that we've talked about on this show uh, hasn't. But yeah, I, I wonder. And it's interesting to me it came right after Black Cauldron because like Atlantis, it seems to share a great deal of DNA with the Black Cauldron. It's, this, is, this is yet another attempt on Disney's part to show that animation can be about something other than princesses and children. It, it can, mm. You can do this kind of action-adventure film that's made for older audiences that doesn't necessarily have a love story at the center of it. Um, and then, you know, like those two movies, it, it underperformed and eventually I guess they stopped doing that. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Maybe. Big, uh, big hero six maybe is, is maybe kind of coming back to that. But anyway, um, yeah, I think of those, of those three that you mentioned, I, I think this is the best one of those three for sure. I think I like Atlantis better than this, but I, 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 I it, you know, it's been a while now since I've seen Black Cauldron. I would have to go back and watch it to, to say whether I thought this was a, this was an improvement over that. I, I, I kind of. Do you have... want me to tell you what you thought? <laughs> I remember. <laughs> you hated Gurgi. I That's, did. That, you were very strong on that point. <laughs> well, I remember. I remember which, my. Feel- which I have a hint about how you're gonna feel about another character in this film based on your opinions of Gurgi. Oh, pretend to be uh, prepare to be surprised um, because I I I I, <laughs> okay. I I do not feel that way about the character you're thinking. I suspect. But, oh, um, okay, okay. My, my, my memory of Black Cauldron was watching it and thinking, why does everybody think this movie is so bad? This movie's not that bad. And and that was kind of my feeling about Treasure Island as well, that or Treasure Planet as well, that it's, um, I, I don't think it's one of their best, but it is a better movie than I had been led to believe that it was. Um, and, and in particular, it has, it has a vision that is unique, kind of unique-ish, in the Disney in the Disney canon, and um, it, it, I think it, it's kind of a noble attempt. I, I don't know that it's successful, but it's better than I thought it was going to be. And I, I would I would say that about both Atlantis and uh, and Black Cauldron as well. I really love the Black Cauldron too, but it um, it also sits yeah in this. It's very like Treasure Planet. I think you can't you can't categorize it like you can some of the other like more classic more as most people would say the more iconic ones they kind of I feel like they fit uh, a a similar mold and a a style that they just like they pair together whereas these ones don't and I, I have to wonder if that is part of the thing is that it doesn't pair with what everyone expected which I would say as artists, right, often artists, we'd be like, that's a good thing, right? You don't want to be making the same thing over and over. But of course, with box office, then you're like, but which like I love the Marvel movies. But let's be honest, there's like a lot of times where they are fitting a mold that works really well and people pay to go see it. And I'm one of those people, you know. And so when you try and do something really different, it's always a risk and it's always, you know, and you never know whether it's going to be that new thing that lifts it or that thing that everyone's like, no, why'd you do that? <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and this is such an experimental era 
for for the Disney animation department. They're they're doing so many different sorts of movies that they wouldn't have done ten years before this because they were stuck in that Disney Renaissance musical mold. Um, and some of them are really wildly aesthetically successful. Um, you know, we we talked last month about uh, about Lilo and Stitch, which is a bizarre movie that's not like uh, mm. not like much else, and and all uh, all three of us really loved it. Um, and then they do some that they're they're clearly aiming for something, and I'm not entirely. Sure. Josh has been calling this the the uh, era of the near miss, and I near I miss near miss, yeah. and I think Treasure Planet's another near miss. Mm. Well, let me let me ask you guys a question, uh, just in re- especially in regards to this one. Um, ha- how familiar are either of you with Treasure Island, the novel, or Disney? Actually, this is Treasure Planet is their third actually adaptation of the Treasure Island um, story. They did their Disney's Walt Disney's first live action which is kind of ironic being on this show but actually his first step into live action film was the 1950 uh treasure island and then later in 1996 which actually is not that long before this one um was muppet treasure island um how familiar are you guys with like the book or the other disney film renditions I have not read the book or seen any of the other movies, including the Muppet one. Although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the kind of broad outlines of the story, and of course the iconography of Long John Silver with the peg leg and the parrot, um, right? And X marks spot and stuff like that. And I know that I know that that yeah. book is responsible for a lot of what we think of as traditional pirate stuff. But I haven't. Yeah. I actually haven't read the book or seen any of the adaptations. How about you, Josh? Yeah, I'm. I'm in the same boat. I. I think uh the same boat ha 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 um that that was unintentional um but yeah uh i think i may have seen the the, the muppet one because i just Mm. i love the muppets but i can't recall it so i don't know if i actually did see it or not the the reason i kind of bring it up is because i wonder if especially in the in the script writing i wonder how much the writers of treasure planet were kind of Going off this expectation, like like you said, Michael, that everyone is familiar with Treasure Island, even if maybe they haven't read the book or haven't seen the other two Disney adaptations of it. Um, and like, I'm pretty sure there was like a big consideration that at one point Star Trek had done a Treasure Island like adaptation, huh? which was one of the years, one of the reasons why they actually, I think like Eisner was like, we can't do it because the the Star Trek people are working on some Treasure Island version of, of their thing. And um, so I just wonder, especially with, with some of the characters, if there wasn't kind of this expectation that people are, are coming in, maybe being familiar with the broad strokes of the story and how that's part of the the reason why they chose to to focus on some of the things i i read the book i love the book um i think and i say this not lightly because i'm like i said i am a english language arts teacher but i actually think treasure planet is a stronger story than than the the book and it really has to do with the the film has a lot more heart especially when it comes to 
to the characters and the the relationships within the characters. Um, whereas the the book is this, it's still good. Don't get me wrong, but like it's a young boy's like adventure, right? And it's it's from the perspective of Jim. Jim Hawkins is quite young, and that's one of the things that they chose to do. And I don't know if you guys want to get talking into like characters and stuff, but one of the big choices was to age up for a teenage Jim Hawkins, which I think is, some people think works and some people don't. And so I would definitely be interested to hear what the two of you think uh, about that, even though you might not be familiar with the source material. Like there aren't many Disney movies that have, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know off the top of my head, but I can't think of many where the most, the the head, the lead character is a teen yeah. versus like, you know, younger or older or coming of age kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, what would this movie have looked like if Jim Hawkins had been, what is he at the, the novel? He's seven or eight. He's a, he's a child, a child, yeah. a child. Uh, he's yeah. 15 or something. I think it was probably a smart yeah. move to age him up. I think the, the, the kind of danger they put him in, I think would have been hard for, a kind of mass audience to swallow seeing an eight-year-old in in that, that kind of situation. On the other hand, mm-hmm. they make him such a aggravating, sullen '90s teenager uh, that that I, I kind of wish they hadn't aged him up, or they'd found a way to do it without without uh, making him the lead singer of a, a grunge band or something. <laughs> <laughs> Of, mm. of the Goo Goo Dolls? Oh, maybe? yeah, I know. It's Johnny Resnick. <laughs> Some of the worst music uh, we've ever heard in a, in a Disney movie. It's not a musical. but the... Okay, we can we can come back to music because I politely disagree. But I want to hear, Josh, what do you think about a teenage Jim Hawkins? I actually, I, I, so I didn't realize that they aged him up. But I'll tell you what I do really like in regards to Jim Hawkins is you see him first as a child. And so you have this idea of, you know, this, you know, this is a dream of his that he's had for a long time. Um, I think I really I really like the scene uh, where he's on the roof and he's overhearing what happened, like overhearing his mother's version of his life, you know, like how he has all this mm-hmm. uh, potential. But like he's just, you know, like he, he can he has this mechanical knowledge, but he he's, you know, failing at school and just kind of a mess up in life. Um, and then she says, uh, you know, I wish I could just see him again as a child and like, you know, with a pet and he's, he, you know, he's, he's wanting to keep it. And I, I, I really thought that was, that was good. Um, and then they play it twice. Uh, the first one, very obviously, like he, he immediately shows up with, you know, this weird turtle creature under his arm um billy bones billy bones not as a pet but like you know like they they play it that way but then at the end of the movie at the end of his character arc he shows up and he gives her a hug and he's got morph with him um which is kind of a pet you know so like i thought like they they did a good job with him as a teenager like trying to help us see like what his mom sees in him you know and what others see in him but what he can't really seem to find in himself. So I thought that was all good. Yeah. I, um, so I have to tell you guys, I think a huge part of this reason, the reason why this film is so, so personal, um, to me is, is because of 
the character of Jim Hawkins. And I think I think you're right, Michael. I, I totally agree. Like they actually hit being someone who teaches teenagers too, like they hit on the mark some of the iconic like teen the faces and the eye rolling at certain points, right? And the the grumbling, especially like when he gets assigned, you know, to to be the ca- cabin boy under silver. But I what I love about it is um Josh, you, you made a really good point about that scene on the roof where you you can really recognize like even when he he gets in trouble, you know, and they and they impound his solar surfer and stuff. Um, you see that like he he feels bad for like disappointing his mom and that even though he's like trying, like he really is just looking for positive affirmation and he's talented and he's smart, but he really he lacks the the confidence to direct it. And um, it one thing that I really love about. Jim and their interpretation that I don't think would have worked had he been young is they actually allow Jim to be really vulnerable in in this film. And I think which is notable for for a lot of reasons, but especially for him being a male character and a hero um, and the fact that he he gets emotional and and he cries and, and he's vulnerable and that's something I think that is not as common, right? Um, and, and, you know, his journey and that it's really that he, he wants to make the adults in his life proud of him, but he doesn't really know how to do that. And this quest for Treasure Planet becomes what he thinks is going to be that. Like, I'm finally going to be able to make them proud, but then what actually ends up making them proud is not this this journey that he goes on but it's more like who he becomes as a person and like the choices that he makes and I think that that wouldn't you know no one would have felt the same about a little boy you know crying you know even if they had chosen to to make that same emotion or or even the the connection with silver I think it it feels which which I think is the heart of the film and really the the strongest is is the silver and jim dynamic but um just yeah like what what does that mean knowing that jim is older versus had he been younger or and and more willing to just like follow orders instead of being that a little bit angsty teen and i was a preteen when i first saw this film and i just felt like I get this character or this character gets me like, like really. And, and it's, it's strange because um, I think it's more personality and I think it's definitely like I was a pretty angsty teen as well um, and went through a lot of transition in, in my young life. And I think something that they changed from the book is actually Jim in the book is raised very happily by both his parents. And it's only shortly after, um, Billy Bones is a regular at their family's inn, and it's only after that Jim's dad dies. Um, but he, it doesn't really, his relationship with his parents doesn't really affect, it doesn't change who he is as a person at all. And so we have this kind of understory where we're already sympathizing more with Jim because he does have this, you know, missing parent. And that also changes the relationship with, with Silver. Um, but I do have a question for you guys, especially in regards to, like, emotions and stuff um something that you 
you guys discussed a long time ago in uh, your Cinderella episode, actually, was the noticing when hand-drawn animators are given the time to use character facial expression and posture to communicate emotion as opposed to just in the script. Um, And I, well, I'll hear what you guys say first about this film in regards to that, like facial expression. You know, this is actually one of the things that jumped out to me in this movie is uh, Silver's expressions are incredible. Like this is like, so he's he's animated by Glenn Keane, who we've mentioned several times on the show. Um, I can't remember when we first mentioned him, Michael. If, I don't know if you remember because <laughs> I think you're the one who you're the one who first brought him to my attention. But but um, yeah, he does. I felt like you know watching it without knowing anything. Like I just went in pretty much blind. I didn't know anything about the movie um, or who was working on it or anything. And and uh, Silver's. Uh, expressions really jumped out at me just on that first watch and so then i looked and saw it was glenn keen i was like oh of course it was because because he is so good at what he does um so yeah i would say silver is like a master's class in that like showing emotion through facial expression there's one particular mm-hmm. scene and the it's 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 near the end it's like near the you know when they're the planet's falling apart and he looks over and sees um sees jim trying to start up that uh that pirate ship to escape and yes he like shows like multiple emotions like in a split second like he's proud of jim for doing that he's gonna come take that ship he's like yeah. you know, like 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 he recognizes it as his way out like like but it just like flashes over his face in a second it's it was really really well done i felt like it must have been What'd hard too because that character is so grotesque looking that I I, th- yeah. I would think it would be very difficult to show a, a huge range of human emotions in someone who looks only semi-human. But you know what I would say about they, that too is that um, like he he did it with that grotesque character and like all that stuff that you're talking about, Sarai, with Jim. Like I get it, but like I really do not care for Jim's character design or any of the like humans in the in the in the movie but particularly Jim's um, like his eyes are too big. We've already talked about his hairstyle being whatever. <laughs> he doesn't have a nose. Like is it, it just, perpetual it uh, shadow across his face? Yeah. It just, it didn't work for me with Jim, but it definitely, it did work for me with, uh, with Captain Silver. Although Jim's character design might be bad, but it's nothing compared to Doppler and Captain Smollett. <laughs> Good Lord. What hideous characters. Well, I was going to ask, you, Michael, do you think that there do you think there is symbolism in the animal inspiration for some of the characters? I couldn't think like, Josh will Josh will testify to this that I, I sent him a text message as I was watching this movie and it said, Why is Doppler a dog? <laughs> well that yeah. Is is he a dog just so that Captain Amelia can be a cat I, and we can have a cat and a dog getting I, along? I don't know. I guess. I don't know. I I liked both of those vocal performances, in particular Emma Thompson as Ca- as Captain Smollett. I thought it was just just terrific. Yeah. But she's good at everything. I love her. But man, were those she some is. hideous, hideous character designs, just awful. And 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 neither one of them showed was capable of showing any kind of facial emotion at all. It was such a such a weird choice. I, I get and I guess making them 
aliens. I think they made a mistake by making them aliens who happen to look like two very familiar, um, two very familiar animals on Earth. Although I say that he's he looks like a dog. She doesn't really look like a cat. I think if he hadn't said she has feline features. Right, right. If he hadn't called her a feline, yeah. I don't know that I would have thought. Oh, she's a cat. Right. I mean, Josh, you're you're a Star Wars fan, so like. I'm just curious as a Star Wars fan who is very like and I you know I am also a very huge Star Wars fan like what what do you like or dislike about the alien designs as opposed to like I mean there's weird ones in Star Wars too right or grotesque things in Star Wars Yeah no and that's that's true I I don't know why I don't know what it was in particular about Jim that I just thought they I don't know it just seemed something seemed off to me, you know, like about the way that he looked, um, mm. especially compared to, you know, like, I mean, Hercules is highly stylized. And so he looked kind of weird, but like it works in some way, you know, or like, um, you know, we just watched Lilo and Stitch, like all those humans are highly stylized. It just there was something about this particular style that they chose that didn't work for me. But, you know, the sad thing about right. it is I was watching like the. The, a little bit of the making of stuff and they were yeah. supposedly going after um the brandywine school as an inspiration the brandywine school is like um like all the classic illustration stuff um is is the brandywine school so like when you think of like old school like uh illustrations like um end of the 19th century type stuff um like that's the Brandywine school and um the I think man if they had really like so they went that direction with like color and stuff like that which like having seen that I can I can see where they went that direction in the movie but I wish they if they had gone that way with character design I think that it would have been way better than what they ended up with yeah I, I can agree with that. it it seemed to me that they, they they hit somewhere between that and and Studio Ghibli um, and the, uh, the the result was uh, neither fish nor fowl, you know. Yeah, yeah. The Studio Ghibli is strong in this movie as as it has been in the last couple. Like, uh, there's a movie, and uh, I won't say much about it, but the Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Um, there's some real Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind vibes in this movie. Like the the heroine in that movie, she's got a, a uh, it's it's not a solar surfer, but it's very similar <laughs> thing that she scoots around on. And then, um, uh, especially when they land on Treasure Planet, um, like the the style, like the giant mushroomy type things, it was giving me some real Nazca the Valley of the Wind vibes because that's that's kind of what the understory of their planet looks like as well. So anyway, I'll throw that well, in. Well, what's what's yeah, well, and what's interesting, like to kind of go along with that, is um, this film, right? For all the the for the for being a box office flop, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, and it did lose to Spirited Away. Oh, well, that seems I, Spirited so, Away is one of the few I've seen. I, I that seems uh, reasonable to me. Yeah, which which, but it's just kind of crazy for. Um, I wonder what the what the chart would look like for films that are considered like box office flops that also were nominated for like best feature because um, I I would assume there's probably not that many and in animated I'm sure there's even less. Oh no, I, I'm but, sure um, in animated yeah. there's more. 
because because there's there's so f- so f- many fewer well that's fi- true. films to be that's considered true. that's true and especially in 2002 but as far as like yeah that's true that's actually that's valid but i it's it i think it's just surprising and just because the thing about box office to me is also box office doesn't mean people didn't like it. No, it means true. no one went to see it. Sure. It, 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 it could no mean it's a bad movie. It, and it could mean it got bad press. It could mean, as this one did, that it opened against Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And yep. after the and first after the first weekend, Disney, Disney disavowed it like a bunch of jerks. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the I felt I, I was listening to a podcast with uh, it's called the the fantasy animation podcast and they they actually just recently like within the last month they interviewed um uh the directors um ron clements and john musker and so that, that's what i was listening to that's where where most of my information is coming from is from that pod Ooh. podcast with them um, i want to listen to that yeah it was really good uh but but yeah that's that's where where i got that story of like they're like yeah and the the monday after the you know the monday after they said uh yeah we're we're just writing this movie off which is crazy to me like it but it apparently you know according to them their their version of events you know it was uh michael eisner trying to distance himself from it and put it put it on the put the failure of it on the roy disney I just I figure well, I when your name also, when your last name is the name of the company, it's going to be much harder for you to get kicked out than um, somebody named Eisner. <laughs> but what do I know? Hey, he didn't learn how to pick his fight. You you're right you're right. Um, well, and then the the interesting thing is it, I this movie was supposed to be a summer release, right? But then they moved it to a Thanksgiving release, which I really don't think this fits as a uh, you know, a Christmas release, especially when it was also competing with Disney's own Santa Claus 2, which though, which though maybe people are not going to be like, oh yeah, that was a great movie. But as far as like, if you're a family and you're looking at, oh, what movie should we go see around Christmas time? Are you going to go see a space pirate movie or a Christmas movie? Right. And then Harry, like you said, Michael, Harry Potter was out. And if you watch any of the trailers that they had, which this this goes into the conspiracy theory about it, is like the trailers couldn't make up their mind about who they actually wanted to to pitch the film to. And one of the trailers like spoiled the whole movie with like giving away that Silver was the bad guy, which is where I was like, did they do that because they assume people know Treasure Island? They, and mu- so they like, must of have assumed Silver's that. The yeah. bad guy. They must have assumed. But that. I think that's a that's yeah, I do too. I think that's a that's a bad move because certainly if you're watching the movie, if you if you did not know Long John Silver was a pirate, um, you you could you could go halfway through the the running time of the of Treasure Planet before you realized it. And it, it seems like kids in particular should be given the opportunity to do that rather than being told before they go in. But that, I mean, yeah. also it's just it's just true that once something gets the stench of failure on it. You avoid it because you think it's it, there must be a reason it failed. So when this movie opened, I, I see in fourth place its first week. Um, I think s- certainly people must have looked at it and said, "Oh well, it must be bad." Now, I mean, we know that's not necessarily a rational uh, judgment. That just because people aren't going to see it doesn't mean it's good or uh, not good. But um, I, I, you know, I've done that. Well, and I mean, it, it also goes to show as well to be honest i in in my life 
when people when I talk about Disney movies and stuff, like I always say, like I'm pretty sure that's how Josh and I ended up discovering that this was my favorite film because we were having a conversation about Disney films. Nine times out of ten, people have never seen it. Right. Right. And then the 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 one time out of ten that they have seen it, people are like, oh yeah, I remember that movie. It was great. You know. And so it's just this thing where yeah, like. And and they kind of it's not just that they dropped it when it was in theaters, but kind of afterward. I know I know, Michael, you talk all the time about the way that they incorporate the, the films and stuff into the parks. They do not you will, incorporate you will this not film. find anything, nothing. It's like it doesn't even exist. And so they're not even getting more people to watch it. I was thinking about that today, though. Where would you even put something? Would you put it in Adventureland with the Pirates of the Caribbean, or would you put it in Tomorrowland? Because it, I mean, one of the one of the appealing things about this movie, I think probably the most interesting thing about it, is the way that it, it blends those two genres. And I, I think the blend is pretty good. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to look back and say, oh, yeah, that movie's awesome. But I, I, will, I will say, like, it is attempting to do something interesting, and it succeeds on a certain level. And and that that genre split. It's it's not exactly steampunk um, like Atlantis was, but it's uh yeah you, you know it, it is this this kind of swashbuckling, uh zerust, old vision of the future. Like I I really find that appealing. But I if I were programming this for the parks, I would uh, I would have a lot of questions right up front. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, this is probably a fitting place um, to talk about um, how how familiar are the two of you with in the creation of this film the thirty seventy rule that they put in. I'm not familiar um, with that. Yeah, go ahead and explain it. I heard it on the podcast today, but go ahead and explain it. Sorry. Uh, well, it's really cool because Michael, you kind of just hinted that you you recognized it without even knowing about it. So, they in the creation of this movie, they had a rule that was th- uh, the called the thirty seventy rule, which which basically went for everything from setting to sound to costuming to the technology within the world in the film, and it was this idea that they wanted seventy percent of the film to be pirates. Right. And 30 or 70 percent to be like it had to do with splitting space versus like 18th century pirates. Right. So whereas they have the technology of like, uh, you know, holographic books and they have blasters and they have, you know, thrusters on the the ship. The ship is not your traditional like Star Wars, Star Trek, cold, silver, you know, metal ship. It's like an authentic 18th century you know ship and and like the the even within space right they have the ethereum which is not just like space where it's atmospheric so you can breathe but it still lacks gravity right and and the technology they have within the story like silver's especially like silver's um cyborg parts like he can do all sorts of things but we see especially like with his leg and and later when Jim actually like stabs him in the leg like it's not perfect like he he has to fix it and and within the costuming they weren't in you know kind of these otherworldly space outfits it was more the traditional like 18th century costumes and it also went into sound effects so whereas most of the 
sound effects when you get like the blasters or the thrusters on the ship, those are obviously created, you know, um, computerized sound effects. But the the creators talked about how for like Ben, as well as for silver cyborg parts, they went into like pawn shops and stuff and would find every type of gear, winch or all these things that to try and make the sound effects that you hear, most of them are like authentic, right? Recorded. And I think I, when you know that it's really cool to like recognize it in, in how they put it all together. And I think Michael, you kind of, um, you, you talked about the blending and I think that's where it all came in is like this idea of it's not all one thing and, and it's not just, this the cold you know kind of space that we know from from other films but it's also not the the pirate the traditional pirates either and i think the uh, one thing that i really love about this film especially is the the color scheme it's so warm with like the purples and the blue and you have like those dark oranges and like the really golden yellows and and I think it's really beautiful, especially when you're think that's those are not colors that we necessarily would be like, yeah, space. Right. Um, but there's a warmth to the whole film that I think is really, really stunning and like aesthetically like it just draws your eye to every every time you're looking at the, the screen, the, the backdrop of the sky is stunning. Yeah, that color thing is really, again, that Brandywine school influence, I think. And that, that is one area where they, they really got it. But like I said, I wish I wish they would have done something a little different with the character design. But I do think that 70-30 rule is very interesting. I think the other area where we see a lot of blending in this movie is the um, the traditional animation versus the um, the CGI animation. Um, and mm. uh, Silver himself is actually the first uh, character who's you know, both like he's got the, yeah. the, uh, the CGI arm and leg, but then he's hand drawn the rest. So he's got, you know, two lead animators on him, um, which is pretty, pretty interesting and pretty cool. I thought his arm actually, was really, really well done actually. And it, yeah. it hadn't occurred to me until you just said something that it was probably CGI. So it must've been, it must've blended yep. pretty well, but yeah, I, I thought, I thought all of those motions were very, very fluid and imaginative and, and well done. Yeah. I really actually um, was like, ah, what? Like, why don't we have more of this? You know, like, I mean, obviously I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the hand-drawn animation, but it's sad to me that, um, you know, Disney, Disney was kind of carving a niche for itself in the blending of hand-drawn and CGI. They did it as well in um, uh, Atlantis and then this movie. And, um, and instead, they decided to, to abandon it and just go all CGI. Well, I'm sure part of it is that both of those movies were notorious flops. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know it's I'm, I know it's about following the money, but like it's also like I mean, from an artistic side, it's right. sad to me that there, that just doesn't exist. Like, there's not like this hybrid zone, which was you know was existing for a little while within Disney. And then they decided to go the same way. I mean, DreamWorks and Pixar were making all the money, and so they they followed, you know, and they went that way. But um, they they had their own kind of cool thing going on, which I didn't even realize until I watched this movie. And then I was like, oh, this this was actually a thing for a little while. This this blending. 
for about two well, minutes. Well, and it, thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think it it was expensive, right? Like they the I think the end count was they had over like thirteen hundred like animators working either you know in the two D animation or the three D, and then obviously you guys talked a lot about with Tarzan, but Deep Canvas had actually progressed as a program so that the entire RLS legacy is that Deep Canvas. And unlike Tarzan, where they only used it for like those 10 minutes, because then Deep Canvas, what once you made it, once you rendered it, you couldn't go back into that world, the, the scene. Whereas uh, by the time they got to Treasure Planet, they could, they could. And so that's why like anytime you see the ship, the characters are interacting with the ship like they are in deep canvas, which is giving the the filmmakers the opportunity to kind of do these like long shots and panning shots in a way that they couldn't really do before with with traditional animation. And so but I think that's the, when you realize that, that every time you see the ship, which I mean, again, like probably what, 75 percent of the movie is on the RLS legacy. That means every time you have 2D characters interacting with the ship, you're having the the deep canvas team work on it um and so i think that's yeah it's expensive to do it as much as we love it especially with the yeah i think silver and you know earlier josh you mentioned like silver's facial expression i love how especially with his cyborg eye is always the way that they use the light from the cyborg eye totally ties into whatever the 2d animator is doing with his facial expression right and and they use that eye to either like silver silver in the book jim actually sees him like straight up murder some people whereas in the in in treasure planet we never actually see silver kill anyone right but I think especially mind you I saw this as a child but you have no doubt in your mind that it he would right he is scary right. when he's in those moments with the eye and with his facial expression and and I love that they give these characters time to emote in that way um it's it's pretty unique Yeah they push off a lot of his um evil doing onto the crab guy what's his name Scroops Scoops Scrumps? Scroop! Mr. Scroop. Who basically plays off of everyone's fear of spiders, right? Again, another character where they, they picked an animal. Very well very well done in that case, though. I think um, I think he I think that you character like design's him. terrific. Mm. Well and so we haven't really talked about um, the actual voice voices yet, but I do wanna talk about while we're on Silver a little bit, um, Brian Murray, who voices Silver, I think is incredible in this in this film. Um, South African actor, actually, you know what you're gonna find is Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like one of the only of the entire like lead cast who is not a Broadway or West End actor. So they got all theater people. I'm a theater person, so I'm like, this is this showing up for theater people. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the only one who is not a theater person but brian murray you know what's interesting i read somewhere that they actually they didn't have one anyone in mind for silver but they considered sean connery and i like sean connery but i'm really glad that it wasn't sean connery because i think that's all you would have heard but i think brian murray like is silver yeah because because we don't know him from anything else 
he, he, he yeah. kind of disappears into the role. It's nice to hear a South African accent in an um, American movie, too. That's not an accent. It gets a lot of play in Hollywood movies. Yeah, well, and what's also cool is, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt asked who, you know, was was in his, I think in his teens when they were recording this, but um, requested that to do his scenes with, because, you know, with animation, a lot of times they all record separately but Joseph Gordon-Levitt actually asked to do all his scenes with Brian Murray because they wanted he wanted to make sure to get that relationship right, and I think you you can feel it. Do you guys agree? I wasn't blown away by the Gordon-Levitt performance. I, he, he was fine. I again, I, I I think a lot of the problem with this movie does fall on Jim Hawkins. I, I think his the the character design and the character and the performance are are not up to snuff and they have to carry more than they're capable of carrying um, in the movie. So I, I think Silver is definitely way better than um, than Hawkins in that sense. But as I said, I thought Emma Thompson as Captain Smollett was amazing. It's a small perform. I mean, it's a small performance in the sense that there's not a huge number of lines. It's a very large performance in the sense that it's like Emma Thompson doing the full Emma Thompson thing. But I, I found that performance yeah. very, very appealing. Almost she enough to has save some the, of the, the best one-liners. <laughs> she she has some of the best lines. And and she, supposedly she had a lot of input in that character, actually, which I think, like you said, it feels like Emma Thompson. It does. <laughs> as, as the Doppler character feels like David Hyde Pierce, who our listeners, I'm sure, know as uh, Niles from, from Frasier. And that that performance was a little bit spottier to me. There, there were some points that I thought he was not up to what they were asking him to do, um, which pains me to say because mm-hmm. I, I love David Hyde Pierce. But um, th- there were a couple times <laughs> when I when I kind of groaned at his at his performance. But the strangest thing in the world, and I, I think I, I think this is probably the only time in history I'll ever say this sentence. But Martin Short was the best part of this movie. <laughs> I uh, I hate Martin Short usually. Like I, I I find him hate's not the right term. A, a very small amount of Martin Short is is enough to for 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 any reasonable human being in my opinion. And he's, you know he's in half this movie, um, being very very large. And it it it, it just worked for me. He was so funny, um, and yet um, somehow like still managed to get some emotion behind this broken down robot uh, Ben. I assume this is the character you thought I was going to hate. Uh, My brain is actually overloading because everything (laughs) I had prepared for myself was Michael is going to hate Ben because everyone hates Ben. (laughs) I don't hate Ben, but I recognize that Ben is not the like, oh, wow, I'm really surprised. But then I'm not surprised, Michael, because I feel like this happens to me a lot when I listen to the show where you you t- always surprise me with what you like and don't like. It's because I don't I have any actual standards. I just fly they... by the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what I was going to say is because I think it always keeps us on our toes and makes me analyze my own like, OK, well, why do I like this or not like this? So that is totally surprising to me josh what was your thought on ben um i found him mostly annoying um (laughs) you're mostly annoying (laughs) tell me if i'm rambling um 
No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did a... I mean, he plays an important part in the movie, for sure. He reminded me a little bit, honestly, of... Um, I can't remember the name now. Um, there's that depressed android in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He reminded me a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Marvin? Yeah, Marvin. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, he, he was... He was he was fine. Like he wasn't um he wasn't so annoying that he like pulled me out of the movie except for when he's like like it, that very early scene when he's like trying to access his memory and he can't. I felt was like a little like a little over the top. But the rest of the the rest of the time he was fine. He was I really enjoyed him when he was uh, uh you know trying to find the right wire to pull to turn off the laser. <laughs> I thought I thought that I thought that okay. whole scene was well done. Like I mean the inner the intercutting of like the fight with Jim and uh Scroop and and uh and Ben trying to figure that out. Like I, I, I was I was there in that part of the movie. I was like, Okay, this this is great. Mm. Yeah. Well it's I need to like delete like two pages of my notes which were <laughs> just you trying to in defend defense ben of Ben. In defense in defense of Ben. Let's keep it. It's not even like I'm overly in love with Ben. I just I was I thought I knew you, Michael, but I was wrong. Thank you for surprising me. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> My wife was also but shocked I that say... I liked that character. So. Oh really? <laughs> okay, good. That makes me feel better. I mean, you listen long enough, you feel like we know you guys, right? <laughs> but um, what I have to say, what I one thing that I really love about Ben is because I think some complaints that people have about Ben is that he really is is kind of a plot device in that he is there to deliver this one piece of information right and and so this you know he kind of hangs around up until this moment that he can um but what i love is and and this is the part that you just referenced josh but the part where when he meets ben we he tells us basically the clue right he gives us the ending the centroid of the mechanism a door opening and closing right right as soon as we meet him but we as well as jim don't put a lot of stake in it because we're just like who is this guy what is he doing you know what what is what does this all this mean and i really think and this this film actually does that a couple times like even even in the opening sequence right where we think we're getting opening narration and then we get a twist on the classic Disney storybook opening that it's young Jim reading this like holographic book that's not actually, you know, just narration, but it's within. And and I like that that twist from the beginning, like it's a total giveaway. They tell us the ending through Ben, but it doesn't make sense until, you know, they're in the places and all the pieces are coming together. And I, I personally find that really clever i really like i'm sorry i know you're talking a lot about ben but i really like your aside there about it being the classic like disney opening on a book i I didn't even put that together but you're right like yeah that's (laughs) yeah no it is right you know i like both your points but your aside was was what caught my attention um yeah but yeah you're right They they, they plant the clues throughout the movie um, mm. you know, on all these, on, and all these different things. And it, it, it does, it comes together well, I think. Yeah. Well, and also, um, the narrator, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the narrator at the beginning is Tony J, also known as Judge Claude 
Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. I don't know if you guys, you you talked you talked about his voice a lot in that episode. Um, former member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, by the way, right? All all these actors, I was like so excited how many of them were theater actors. When Levitt's done, uh, Gordon Levitt's done theater now, right? He just had it at the time. Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like he did. Say it uh, again. I feel like Joseph Gordon-Levitt has done theater now. I feel like he was in um, Singing in the uh, Rain or something. He he might have. Yeah, I just I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. Certainly at the uh, time he was. He was if known he as has a sitcom now, actor. but at the time. Well, and what's interesting is at the time when this movie was done, I'm pretty sure David Hyde Pierce was the only one who actually had um, voice acting experience. Maybe Laurie Metcalf, who plays Sarah Hawkins, Jim's mom, who she's also Andy's mom in Toy Story. She probably had done it before, but she, David David Hyde Pierce of most of them were was the only one with voice acting before this movie. He, um, she had been on an, at least in one episode of King of the Hill. Um, Laurie Metcalf. She's a mm-hmm. she's a national treasure. I don't yeah. think they give her a whole lot to do in this movie. <laughs> They don't, but I love, I think they do a good job, even with that opening scene to the scene at the Benbow Inn, like establishing, and Josh, you kind of hinted at this already, but like establishing the relationship between Jim and his mom in a way that really endears, I feel, endears both of them to viewers. Um, I, I have another question then for you guys. What do you think about our parrot replacement, Morph? I am kind of broadly anti-morph. I also <laughs> I, found myself the whole movie it. wishing they would just call him Murphy instead of Morphy and let people get the joke instead of going all the way. Just just call him Murph or Murphy. Everybody, everybody would get it, and the kids who didn't get it would be very proud of themselves three years later when they did. <laughs> I, I, I'm not like I'm not against him, but I don't. I don't know that he added a whole lot. I, I guess you need him for a couple of the plot points. And I get I get that he's a parrot, that he, he parrots physically instead of just vocally. Oh, yeah. I didn't get that. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> parrot thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm learning so much. <laughs> so what did you think of Morph, Josh? I liked Morph fine. I, mean, I, think, I think he reveals early on Silver's uh, soft side, yeah, which you kind that's of true. that's true. You kind mm. of need that moment, um, but yeah, and he does. I mean, he he serves as a plot point later, you know. Um, but yeah, he's he's all right. He's kind of hard to figure out. Like, well, you know, the the thing the thing actually about Morph was that I was thinking about today was um, he kind of is the. Um, I, I guess in, in in the past we've talked about how you know you know your hero because they get along with with you know the the natural animals and stuff and so morph is a mm. little and in for that because um, morph gravitates very quickly to Jim and away from mm. and you know even by the end is is you know uh, not at the very end when when silver hands him over but like towards the end of the movie like he's chosen jim over silver like he's gone with jim down to to treasure planet and so um yeah yeah so i i thought there was a little bit of that there it was my my thoughts on morph i do like how they set up that 
like because he we see him multiple times like impersonating objects like the first time we meet him he's pretending to be Jim's spoon um which i think leads up to the the big plot point where he pretends to be the map and the map gets left behind on the ship like it that to- totally makes sense in the in the context of the story like i feel like that was so well set up that you know when he takes the map and then they reach into the the you know the pile of rope and it turns out to be morph so they have to go back to the ship like i feel like that storyline you know works really well um i don't know if you guys have thoughts on that part of that kind of side adventure that that jim has i know you said josh that you like the the whole fighting of that part but just even the reason they have to go back to the ship yeah, honestly, I was for most of the movie, I like all the plot points were pretty good to me. The the one that I didn't really enjoy was the supernova turning into a black hole or whatever. And I realized like why it's important in the movie, like they they have to have that moment in order for a couple big things happen there, right? Like um Dr. um <laughs> whatever his name is, Dr. Doppler. Uh, Doppler, thank you. Um, who's like looking at the Doppler radar in that scene? So I should remember his name. Um, you know that's <laughs> that's where he becomes helpful for the first time, and and the captain finally starts to res- start respecting him. And then obviously it's also where Arrow dies. Um, and and so that's that's a huge moment in the movie where um, Jim has done the right thing, but then he doesn't realize he's done the right thing because Scoop or scroop has has undermined it so like i get why it needs to happen in the movie but that was the that was the moment in the movie like the little side plot thing that i like i it, i don't i i just didn't like it <laughs> i don't know why I, I think it was just too it was it probably looked amazing in 2002 yeah and right now it just looked it just looked too i don't know chintzy well, the other thing mm. that did was give I think... the captain a reason to respect Doppler, which of course will uh, will bear fruit in, at the end of their story. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I, I and it's it's definitely a catalyst for Silver and and Jim's relationship as well, which also I guess should lead to I think my favorite scene in the movie, which is when. I mean, I have a lot of favorite scenes because I really love this movie. But when <laughs> after after I'm, I mean, I'm just being because honest, guys. I'm being honest. Favorite. <laughs> um, no, because I know there's never too many favorites. Um, but the the scene after that happens, you know, where Jim is is kind of beating himself up for what happened and Silver and the. The title of the score, which uh, we can talk about the score, and then I know, Michael, you want to talk about the songs, but the score for that scene, which I love the soundtrack of this this film, but it's the name of that track is um, Silver Comforts Jim. And I used to cry. Now I still get choked up every time in that scene. And and you can't really have that without the this huge loss and this feeling that Jim has that again he's disappointed all these people who he was you know he just wants to to make them proud and he failed again um and the score there with Brian Murray's performance with I think the animation of like Jim like leaning on Silver's belly and Mm -hmm. then like when he's walking away the little smile like oh my goodness it's so 
good and it's so it gets me in the heart and it's like overwhelming for me <laughs> it's, it's a really well done scene although the knowledge that silver knows exactly what's happened he knows that uh jim didn't do anything wrong and that his psychopathic henchman is the one who killed arrow like it it doesn't ruin the scene for me, but it it makes that scene much more complex than just um, than just what it appears to be. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like like there's something kind of horrible about what Silver's doing in that scene, because really this is his fault. I mean, I I don't I don't remember. It. Well, and I think he shows the conflict of that like obviously after Jim leaves. Like we definitely see that he does feel that. I think you're right that he feels like he he doesn't know how to walk the line anymore of, of like keeping an eye on this kid to right. keep him out of their business versus like actually caring about him. He caught and feelings. And so he's like trying say. to encourage him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so I think there is this moment where he wants to encourage Jim, but he definitely recognizes like in doing that. Yeah. Like if, if I really care about him, they're going to think I, I've gone soft and I'm losing focus and yeah, but I think you are picking up on something that is there. You're right. And there's no analog to that in the original novel. Is that correct? That's, that's what I gathered. No, no. So in the original, in the original novel, silver does respect Jim. Um, and he says that, but the thing is in the novel, silver, silver kind of more is like, he goes where, the to the winning side right Mm -hmm. so as soon as um in in when they get to treasure island in the book as soon as they realize that they can't find the treasure because in the book actually ben gunn has found and already moved the treasure the pirates all turn on silver and silver then is like hey jimbo (laughs) i'm on your side and so they they actually end up protecting silver from his own pirates and so there is this respect that Silver has for Jim because he is this kind of resourceful, clever boy and in a few occasions does outsmart Silver. Um, but there isn't the what which what I really love this kind of mentor, you know, mentee, father, son relationship that really builds in this film that I I love um, and I think really is what sets it apart. They, they leaned so hard into it that I was afraid that it was going to turn out that uh, Long John Silver was Jim's father the whole time. And I'm, I'm very thankful they did not go that route. If only <laughs> because the weird. the anatomy wouldn't make any sense. Like how could, um, how could <laughs> Long John Silver have such an enormous nose and, and Jim have only, none at all? Only Michael, only you would be worried about that. <laughs> I was preparing to complain about. It. I was really, I was really impressed. They decided not to go that route because they telegraphed it so much that I, I was shocked. That's not, that's not what ended up happening. Oh Especially when you gosh. had that. No. You had that scene where he has, he has the dream. Jim has the dream. He wakes up and his father is leaving, and I was sure he was going to go down to the, to the docks at the end of that dream and reach out, and there was going to be silver, and it was, oh, it's his father the whole time. Good for them for, for not doing that. <laughs> they didn't do that. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I love the score. I think the instrumental score, James Newton Howard, 
you you guys have talked about him. He did Dinosaur. He did Atlantis, The Lost Empire, but also has done so many other Sixth Sense, Signs, the live action um, Peter Pan, not a Disney version, but another one, The Hunger Games, Born Legacy. He's done so many. I really like him as a composer, uh, and I think this score is this this score is actually my first love of movie soundtracks, which I would say like I'm a huge movie soundtrack junkie. Now, Michael, do you want to go first about the the two <laughs> lyrical hey, wait, wait. tracks, or do you want Josh to go first, or do you want me to go first? <laughs> wait, let me let me also say just because we are a Disney podcast, like you you listed a lot of great movies there, but he also he's back at Disney. He did. Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, New, yes. Yeah. And, so, and anyway. the Jungle Cruise. I haven't seen that one. Oh, I didn't know he did the Jungle Cruise. I only care about the, the animated one. Yeah. Well. That's not. That's I won't. Not. I won't be seeing the Jungle Cruise. So. That's the. That's not 100. Think the extent of my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The the songs. They're terrible, right? They're bad. They're bad songs. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to agree with Michael on this and they're, one. They're not even terrible the way you would expect uh, Disney songs written by Johnny Resnick of of, uh, <laughs> of Buffalo's the Goo Goo Dolls to, to sound like they're they're just they're just really, really bad. I you know, my question whenever they get Johnny Resnick is, did they ask Paul Westerberg and he said no. And so they had to go for his uh, his non-union equivalent. Who is who's Paul oh, I'm Westerberg? Sorry, that, that, Westerberg was the lead singer of the Replacements. The Goo Goo Dolls um, basically rip off the Replacements from the first note of their career to the last. Okay. You'll remember the Goo Goo Dolls, Josh. They did that song for uh, City of Angels, Isis, Iris. Iris. Isis is the yeah. Egyptian goddess. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Isis is I, a bad song. Isis is like a thousand times better than either of the songs <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. Okay, I will say, as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, I do not like the montage to a pop song thing that happens in a lot of animated movies. Sure. Like Pixar's Pixar is a big offender at this. I I love Pixar for the most part, but like I'm just not a big fan of the the pop song montage sequence. You don't like because she loved part. me from Toy Story 2? That, that might be an exception. What about the beginning of good. Up? That's not the a pop song. Up is different. That's not a pop song. That's not a pop that's song. Just, I don't that's mind just score. Fair, fair. I don't like the pop okay. song montage. So it's the pop. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. It's gotcha. Pop. Yeah, okay. it's the pop song. And this one pulled me way out of the movie. Really, really <laughs> bad. like what is happening right now like where why like it just like they should have followed their own 70 30 rule <laughs> on this one like well, nowhere in the 70 30 does the goo goo dolls fit well, well and I'll, I'll also say this about that uh, montage is it was very clear what the emotions of the scene were even without the music and and adding the lyrics that just spelled everything out didn't make it better in addition to the song just not being very good I'm still here. That's the name of the song. Okay. Thank you both for your opinions. I appreciate what you both have to say. Um, I do disagree, but I will tell you, I think it's because when, like I said, this, this movie is hugely personal for me. And so actually these songs, 
things and it, you're going to laugh at me and I give you permission to laugh at me, but especially like I'm still here and always know where you are. The, the ending song though, these songs, I, when I think of like, Oh yeah, that song was like an anthem of my teenage years. Like it, it really was. And I, like, if I can explain it to, and I would argue Josh that these pop songs were tying into that 70 30 70% of the classic orchestral works and then the the 30 being the contemporary music um and i think that i love a good montage um i think josh you, you know that i staged a, a production at the school we worked at together and there was a montage in my play was it, was um, it true i'm but, still here by so Johnny i Rosner? do love <laughs> it was not it was a it was a robin hood adaptation but um <laughs> I think there is they did it intentionally and I think it's definitely personal opinion whether you think it works or not but I think where you said it pulled you out of the the movie I think there was they were in a maybe not trying to pull you out of the movie but they were trying to jar viewers in a way that the lyrics often a score doesn't doesn't tell you how to feel right it just makes you feel whereas the the opportunity that they have here to put emotional significance both at the end when when Jim has arrived back from the interstellar academy you know the Benbow Inn's been rebuilt like and he looks out to the sky you know and you get this hint that Silver's still looking out for him and, and especially in the montage where we not only get the growth of Jim and Silver's time on the ship as well as the the growth of their relationship and you see you see Jim struggling which I just love too the animation the transitions like we haven't talked about this you guys talked about it a lot with tarzan the transitions between scenes they do it a lot in the montage obviously they do it in the beginning where he's reading in in the book and then it switches to the older him i love some of the transitions they're so smooth and i think these songs are intentional to kind of heighten the emotional and add depth to the storytelling at these parts again i I think it's totally fair if it didn't work for you guys. Like I said, for me, it does work. And also, I like there's the the songs. It's um, I'm still here. It is. It's also called I'm still here. And then in parentheses, it's called Jim's theme. So it's 100% written to be Jim singing like and it's about being misunderstood about trying and feeling like no one sees you and no one no one knows you i think that's what and, all I johnny mean, resnick I, like, songs are about actually <laughs> maybe, right michael which means that that's exactly what they were trying to do and everything that young teen preteen me felt was totally legit <laughs> we're gonna buy you a copy of the replacements let it be <laughs> I'm reading on uh, uh, Wikipedia. Apparently, there's a music video for "I'm Still Here" apart from the movie. Listen to this: a music video was created that featured a young man in front of changing scenery, all the while Resnick is appearing alongside him. The young man and Resnick are seen running throughout the video towards Treasure Planet and away from the young man's arguing parents. Scroop, one of the villains from the movie, in silhouette, and the destruction of the planet. The end of the video depicts Resnick walking down a road. Is this real? I've never seen this. I don't think this is real. It, it must have been nice to be in a room where so much money was being th flushed down a toilet. <laughs> I have to see well, this music know, video now. I'm going to watch it. Somebody's got to do it. Um, 
Let me. I'm so I'm sorry to trash the song you like, but oh man, do I hate that song. No. No, but I recognize that it's totally hugely personal. Um, and so, well, let me ask you a question um, about like some story, some plot stuff. Um, when you guys were discussing dinosaur, you had a conversation about the impact of villains who are allowed to live slash be redeemed. And so I wanted to hear what you guys thought about the way that Treasure Planet does this. Oh, yeah, I, I thought that was an appealing part of the movie. The, uh, because because Silver's not exactly a villain. He's a kind of anti-villain. Um, he, you know, Jim recognizes he owes him something, and, and so he, he lets, him, lets him loose to go seek his fortune elsewhere, you know? And I, I mean, obviously this is setting up a sequel, or... In fact, I think they, they had actually written um, a, a plot treatment for a sequel where they, they he had to, to stop... Uh, to, to stop him again from, from doing some other, uh, you know, some sort of space mischief. But I, I, I thought that was, that was quite good that he, um, that, that they didn't, they didn't kill silver at the end, nor did they lock him in jail. Um, now the, the more traditional Disney villain death goes to Scroop, uh, you know, who floats away. Right, who, yeah. He floats slash flies. He gets the reverse villain death. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I I I also liked that they they kind of redeem Silver. Um, I I felt like well, honestly, like Silver redeems himself. So, um, you know, Michael, you you made a comment during Oliver and Company that's like stuck with me when you mentioned um, that whatever the uh, I'm so bad with names, but like whatever the um, the human in Oliver and Company, you know, his name just Fagan. Uh, Fagan. Yeah, Fagan. That's right. Uh, you know, like when he gives um, the little girl, the uh, Oliver, like you, you said there, like he puts his life at risk, but he saves his soul. And I, I've, I've thought mm. about that so many times. And like when when Silver lets go of the treasure um, to go get Jim. He saves his own soul, you know, at that moment. Right. Mm. Um, and I really think, like, it, it, it's powerful, you know? And it's it that that was a moment in the movie that I really liked when he has to make that choice. It's a little, um, you know, it's a little uh, Indiana Jonesy, But, of course, in Indiana in Indiana Jones, he has to make the same choice, right? He has to, he has to not grab for uh, eternal life in order to um, save his, save his own life, not save it. his father has to pull him up, but, um, the mm. same, same, same sort of plot maneuver, but I, I, it still worked for me. Like it was really, really good. And, um, yeah, so I like that. I, I felt like this movie, the relationship between Jim and, um, silver is really, um, like really highlighted the idea of mercy to me. Like they're both mm. very, like there's moments for both of them where they have to be merciful with the other one. Um, Silver has to be merciful when when he's actually got Jim in his sights, but he can't pull the trigger. Um, and then Jim, yeah. you know, Jim is merciful with Silver at the end when you know, like justice would probably demand that he, you know, that he that he doesn't let him go, but mercy allows him to go. And so, yeah. I love the line after, obviously, after Silver, I love that scene, too, where Silver rescues Jim and they run out and Jim's like, 
silver. And he's like, oh, it's a lifelong obsession, Jim. I'll get over it. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a good line. I, and I think there's a lot of symbolism, too, as well, mercy as well as, like, sacrifice, because they have a conversation earlier where um, when Jim asked Silver about all his, you know, cyborg parts and, like, how it happens, and he's like, you know, you give up a few things chasing a dream, and just this idea if after all this time, you know, his his dream was having this treasure, but then, you know, he he ends up having this really meaningful relationship and what does that mean then to 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 switch a dream or or to to find something that's more valuable than gold right um and and i think so like i when i was younger i wanted to have a silver right i wanted I wanted a silver. I wanted a Mr. Miyagi, a Gandalf, right? A Yoda. Like, I remember growing up, I was like, I need, I want someone like that in my life who I can count on to, like, to always believe in me. And um, and it's cool now as an adult because I, I like, watched it this time. And, and I was like, you know, now I'm a teacher. And... I sure I still want a, a silver right I still want someone who who's always challenging me and believing in me and celebrating me in in all you know the moments that it works but also now as an adult I'm like what opportunities do I have to be someone's silver right, right? to pour into someone and believe in them and challenge them and push them and um and I think that's a really definitely a beautiful like theme and kind of kind of just commentary that this this film puts forth but i would definitely love to hear like what biblical perspectives or like theological commentaries like you both believe that you pulled from this film or something no i I mean i think i think that's a good that's a good question to ask yourself like like how can i come alongside these those of us who work with young people, right? How, how can I come alongside these unpleasant, angsty young people and be the person they need me to be? You know, every now and then you get the opportunity to do that. And you can look past how unpleasant and angsty they are. And they can look look past <laughs> the, your various unpleasantnesses. <laughs> they can look, look past your grotesque... My, my grotesque <laughs> nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I basically mentioned mine already as, as far as just that, that theme of mercy, you know, like, um, I, I, I don't know that I have much more to add to that, but, um. Sure, sure. I, something I did notice in this watch round, uh, which I've seen this film a lot, but, um, there's a, so when, at the beginning, I never noticed this before, but at the beginning when, after Jim's been brought in by the robo-cops or whatever, um, his mom, you know, is lecturing him and he, he's not really, he's, he's just like, you know, it's fine, like, don't worry about it. And she says, you know, I just don't want you to throw away your whole future. And he says, yeah, what future? And I never noticed before, but at the end, when Silver invites him to come with him, you know, he says, well, you know, when I first got on this ship, I would have been a heartbeat. But then I met this old cyborg and he taught me I can 
you know, chart my own course and, and that's what I'm going to do. And, and silver asks him like, what do you see off that bow of yours? And Jim says a future. And I never caught that echo before that really what, what changes for Jim is like, he recognizes that he doesn't have to have it all figured out to hope for the future, like to know that to live means something beyond what maybe the world may tell you is like right or good enough, right? That I think about, you know, there's that saying of like, God doesn't call the equipped, right? He equips the called and, and this idea that Silver at the, in the story like told Jim that he are, you know, he had everything he was gonna need to make a difference and to, to live well. And it's recognizing like that he does have hope and he does have a future. And it doesn't mean he knows what it's gonna look like, but it means that he's living, you know, trusting that it's it's there. And I kind of I kind of liked that, you know, especially from a biblical perspective of recognizing that God never tells us like, oh, you have to have it all figured out in order to to glorify me or live for me, right? Like there's no that's not the point. Like the point is you know, that I, I have called you, I will equip you, you know, I have equipped you, and you just need to, to trust that I'm going to show you. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's also some symbolism of light in this film, um, in that anytime Silver's talking about Jim, um, you know, like... M- making some making him proud or making anyone proud or kind of living up to all the potential he has you know he he says things like i hope i'm there catching some of the light coming off you that day or look at you now glowing like a solar fire and i just like wondered i mean i'm sure some of that part partially has to do with like it's a space movie but i wondered if there wasn't some some like biblical symbolism to be pulled from you know that like letting your light shine before men right that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven and if there wasn't something to be pulled from that and recognize like when we're living for christ like we have the opportunity to shine for him hmm. yeah i think it's a good parallel i i <laughs> i didn't catch it in the in the i mean i don't know that the movie is necessarily delivering that message but i i do think it's a it's a as a christian watching it you can definitely like right catch those the you know those parallels to to scripture and say yeah you know there is there is a you know a light that shines shines out out of us um in some way you know uh when we do when we do good works um so well can i ask you i have some uh a wrap-up some wrap-up questions yeah let's do it okay so if let's see uh this is this is one that i've always wanted to ask you guys your show is called before they were live so i have to ask which live action film can be disney doesn't have to be would you love to see see made in 2d animation gosh um I don't know. I think the I think we mentioned Harry Potter earlier. I think the Harry Potter movies could have been cooler as like an animated series rather than mm. movies. 
because like and this is not an idea original to me somebody mentioned this somewhere online at some point and i picked up on it but like like i think a book adaption adaptation a book adaptation into a uh, series rather than a single movie you would you would have more time to do a lot of the the you know the the side plots and subplots and character growth and stuff uh, that that are often the things that get cut out of movies. So, I'll, off the top of my head, that's what I will say. Is I wish the Harry Potter movies had been animated. <laughs> I think almost any like classic literature adventure story could be made into a good two D animated movie. Um. Now, because you know you're not limited anymore because of CGI and stuff like that, you can make a a 3D movie. Or you can make a, a excuse me a quote unquote live action movie out of them that's really you know heavily animated. But it, it would be cool to see um, to see something like the Three Musketeers turned into a Robin Hood style uh, low budget Disney 70s feature. <laughs> I do you guys think the whales in this film are a homage to the the humpback whales in Pines of Rome the segment from you guys talked about it in um Fantasia 2000 do you know what I'm I talking do, yeah. about I thought, yes. I thought I, about that I wondered I, they I, look better I they they look better and I absolutely do think it's a I actually have this down in my notes of, of things to talk about because when we talked about Fantasia 2000 and that Pines of Rome uh we talked about how terrible the eyes looked because they couldn't figure out how to do eyes and CG, and on this one, like they zoom way up into the eye, and I was like, "That's not on purpose." <laughs> they knew what they did. <laughs> nice. What about um, the treasure? So, treasure planet, like the actual planet. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that they kind of do the Saturn's rings, but they flip them to kind of be like an X? So it's like a pirate, like X marks the spot. Thoughts on? That choice. Uh, very clever. I, mean, I don't yeah, have I don't have that. much beyond that, but I I think that's a, a really nice way to do the most famous thing from Treasure Treasure Island. Nice. Okay. Then my last question is: If you had to rank this film, Treasure Planet, with I I think we kind of you guys hinted at this, but like with other disney animated classics kind of where would you put it as i i like it more than or less than this one right are you going to give us some to to put it against or do you just want like the general tier where i think it belongs well because yeah it's personal to you i think it is about the same quality as atlantis the lost empire so i think it's that being said i think it's better than dinosaur I think it's better than the Aristocats. I think it's better than Sword in the Stone. But I would I would probably put it wherever I've got Atlantis and wherever I've got um, uh, the Black Cauldron. Although I think it's it's probably a little better than the Black Cauldron. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, I yeah I said earlier I like it. I like it better than Atlantis. And I think I like it better than Black Cauldron. It has been a long time since I've watched Black Cauldron, but like, you know, as of right now, I like it better than Black Cauldron. I famously like Sword in the Stone much more than Michael, so I, I wouldn't put it as high as Sword in the Stone. But I know that Michael ranks that one quite, quite low. Yeah, I'm a Sword in the Stone um, hater. 
Yeah. I think actually... <laughs> okay, so the the... What I think is interesting is putting it up against the other um, movies that these guys have done. So they've done seven in the canon. I've only seen six of them Mm. because I I haven't seen Moana yet, Um, which I know is maybe crazy hosting a show, but we we haven't got that far. So um, (laughs) here's the movies they they did. They did uh, um, Great Mouse Detective. They did uh, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet. Princess and the Frog, and Moana. And so I think out, out of those, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, I, it's it's probably in the in the bottom the bottom couple, yeah, yeah. you know? The like, only one I'm not sure about is Hercules. I don't I don't know if I think this is better or worse than Hercules. It is a certain it is certainly a more interesting attempt than Hercules. I think Hercules aims much lower than this does, but Hercules hits what it aims for. And this, I don't mm-hmm. think, does. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's somewhere. It's somewhere in the Hercules range, for me. I am more likely to return to this one than I am to Hercules because I think this is a more interesting movie. But I don't know that it's a better movie. Mm. It is definitely not as good as the other ones, though. I mean, it's been. I haven't seen Princess and the Frog since two thousand nine. So I mean, I don't. I don't. I, I can't really speak to that, but the other ones that we've watched more recently than that, this is this is definitely not as good. Even even the Great Mouse Detective, which is a thoroughly minor movie, I think holds together um, in a way this one doesn't. The really, I, I think the the big problem here is the the main character is is so. It I, I, pains me to say this, Sarai, because I know that you identify with him, but he's he's such an unappealing character to me. Um, that I, 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 the whole movie falls a little bit because of that. Whereas, you know, the main character, the great yeah, mouse detective is Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's probably, you know, what plays into our earlier conversation of he, he isn't a hero by the standards of any of your other Disney films, which are, which, you know, he, I, I think they purposefully, made him flawed right right? and made him you know he is not everyone's hero like there are some like like you said like Sherlock Holmes everyone you all are gonna root for Sherlock Holmes and so I think there is there is an aspect of that that I totally understand that is not for everyone and I think that's why for me and just you know I was very blessed like my family um, lived overseas and I had my mom's best friend we called her Aunt Patty we we lived in Africa and she would mail us the VHS of whatever new Disney movie was coming out <laughs> and she would send it to Africa. And we had this tiny little TV with a tiny little VHS player. And so this is how this is my history with Disney is I remember watching these Disney movies on VHS over and over in a tiny village in Senegal in West Africa. And so I think for me, especially I was right at the perfect age um, for this when I first saw it. And I think, yeah, it's it's just interesting because it is, I think it's a personality type thing, which is funny, right? Because I say that and I'm like, that means Michael probably would, would doesn't like me as a person, but <laughs> I'm an adult now, right? But um, but it's, it's this idea of like, I understand Jim, like I get him. And it's not even that I like, 
cheer for him in, in every moment. But I think it's it's also a reason why I make a really good like secondary school teacher, because I understand teenagers in a way that I think not everyone does. And and I, I recognize the some of those struggles and some of those hurts and the, the inability to communicate like and identify like who you are and where you fit in the world. And I think that's a huge part of Jim's story and a huge part of how they've set up his character. And I think that's not everyone's story. Like, I know that's not everyone's story. Right. Um, But it is mine. And so I think for me, I was the perfect time and I didn't have the whole craziness with the the box office and stuff like I probably ended up watching this a little bit later on a VHS at home in this village in Senegal, you know, being, and it was, and I'm a little bit odd too, because this is, this is a movie of, it's a, it's, you know, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test or whatever, right? It's a, it's a, and I mean, at the heart, I think a lot of people be like, this is a boys movie, right? And so I think it's kind of funny that I come on here as a girl and be like, I relate to this movie so much and I still love it so much. And it really had a big impact on my youth, um, which is why it's like such a tragedy to me that so many people haven't seen it, even to know like what it is or all that kind of thing. Well, it so, is so that worth being said, watching like because it it is it is attempting to do something very interesting, and I, I we can disagree about how well it succeeds at that. But if, <laughs> if people are interested yeah. in the kind of action adventure side of the Disney canon, they owe it to themselves to watch Treasure Planet because it's it is. It is a unique entry in that um, in that subcanon. What do you say, Josh? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I and you know that was that was one of the reasons for starting this whole show was because I was like, there's Disney movies I've never seen, and so I should watch them all in chronological order and talk about them on the internet. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, I'm so glad you did. <laughs> yeah, but I I'm really glad I watched this movie. I I I think I liked it more less than you like at Sarai, but more than, than more than Michael did. So I'm somewhere in between you that two. Right. But yeah, I, I, I really, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. The, the thing I would say about like kind of the angsty teenager thing is I just, I think they did it better with Aladdin and Hercules. Like I think both of them have their kind of angsty moments and they still come off as a little more likable. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, or even yeah. Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or even Lilo and Stitch. So, but uh, yeah. Thank but overall... you guys for letting me come oh, on no, thank you and for talk about on. this movie because I really loved. I loved it. I love talking about this film with people. So I'm really glad that I got to to join you guys and and hear your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Plug your podcast again, uh, Sarai. What, what's the name of it? Yes, if you want to hear uh, more from me um, and my sister Kelly, we have a podcast. It's called Not a Lady, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman podcast. All right. And I want to throw in one more thing on this movie before we go, which is that like Lady and the Tramp, uh, the children at the end, the girls follow the the, the girl, <laughs> and the boys follow the boy, and yes, I I didn't do. understand it in Lady and the Tramp, and I don't understand it's it. More, it's more comprehensible here, Josh, because I think the implication, <laughs> I didn't make this up, I read this, I think the implication is that the uh, they, they belong to a single species, the men in the species look like dogs, and the women in the species look like <laughs> cats. Okay, there you go. Thank you, thank you. you I, guys I, are... I, I learned so much on this, on this I'm, show. I'm always ready to talk about cartoon genetics, apparently. 
<laughs> I th- I feel like that is a running theme with you, Michael. It really is. <laughs> and you guys are talking about Brother Bear next Ooh, month. Yes? Yeah. We're talking about Brother Bear next month. I <laughs> I really I really appreciate a lot about Brother Bear. Again, this is my generation, but I appreciate it in the same way that I appreciate like Mulan or Pocahontas in that they really tried to tie into a culture like Inuit culture right. and uh, and Phil Collins music, which was you guys kind of were n- on the fence about Phil Collins music in um, Tarzan. He's he wrote a lot of the songs, but he doesn't sing all of them for Brother Bear. But I like it. Story of forgiveness and perspective. So I'm excited to hear what you guys think about that one. Something to look forward to. <laughs> all right. Well, <clears throat> our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and also at christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. You can hear more of Sarai on her podcast, Not a Lady. Uh, We also want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Sarai Manning and Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altman-Chofer reminding you to stay out of trouble, you old scalawag. <laughs>